we are beginning a new sermon series for the month of February titled, The Gospel is Greater Than Politics. And today I'm talking about the Christian political identity. And for many of you, there are probably alarm bells going off right now, blaring in your head. Because you might be thinking, oh no, I don't want us to become one of those churches where everyone is told how to vote a certain way, uh, that Christians can only have this or that particular political perspective. Others of you are thinking, Bob, you better agree with me, but I don't think you do. And still others of you are thinking, I don't want to talk about this. It's boring or hopeless or dirty. It's not relevant to me. So let me start by saying to everyone, no one is going to tell you how to vote. It's my conviction that at this moment in the United States, there is no one right Christian way to vote. We can all disagree on how we should politically address the issues we face. But we must wrestle with it, and we cannot ignore it. First, because more than ever, politics is driving the hopes and fears of millions of Americans. And the gospel has something to say to our hopes and fears. Second, God will hold us accountable for how we use the power granted to us in our political and civil rights. We must exercise them thoughtfully and faithfully. So, is there a Christian political identity then? Yes. And maybe one of the greatest descriptions of it comes from Paul's letter to the Philippian church in chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. Follow along as I read. Brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me. God, we're grateful for your word and we're grateful that you promise to supply your spirit that we might understand and apply it to our lives. We're grateful that you are promising to conform us to the image of your son, Jesus. Please do so now as we sit under your word. Uh, please work through this message, uh, work in every circumstance in our lives, that we might be more like Jesus and pick up our crosses and follow him. It's in his name we pray. Amen. When I graduated college in 1998, my peers and classmates were mostly going either to law school or to Wall Street. I instead took a $16,000 a year job as a political organizer for a progressive organization linked to Ralph Nader. And I did that for a year. And then the next summer, I applied to teach social studies at Christian high schools. One school called me back because I started the process so late, and it was the King's Academy in Sunnyvale. And I happened to be out in the Bay Area that late July. So we had an interview. The job was to teach senior government, civics class, and economics, also sophomore world history. I'd be teaching about American government. 
Now, this was a conservative Christian school. Some of their textbooks were from Bob Jones. And if you don't know Bob Jones, all you need to know is that he thought Billy Graham was a liberal heretic. So they don't use those textbooks anymore, but in 1999, that was the case. So the hiring committee in my interview was curious about my previous year's work. They kind of leaned in and said, when you say progressive political organization, what do you mean by that? And of course, keep it simple, stupid, I said, well, you know, we believe that there are wealthy special interests using money to skew politics, and that's not right, and we fight that. And they leaned back and they said, ah, we too believe there are special interests distorting politics. Neither of us wanted to get any more specific than that. (laughs) They hired me on the spot. What I didn't know then was that no one else had applied for the job. (laughs) School was starting in three weeks. They were desperate, and I should have asked for more money. (laughs) Now, I ended up teaching there for six years. I had a wonderful time. I created an honors government class. I brought AP U.S. history to the school. It was fantastic. And I worked very hard to teach multiple angles of every issue, enough so that my students had ongoing debates about what my true political loyalties were. You might even say that I was fair and balanced. Oh, come on, that's good. (laughs) All right, now that's as it should be, because 20 years later, we can see how political identity is replacing other kinds of identities. I've mentioned in the past how there are more interracial marriages in the United States than interpolitical marriages. Now, that's astonishing given our troubled history. Here's another one. More parents would be more upset that their kids married someone from a different political loyalty than a different religion. In many ways, politics is replacing religion. Politics is telling people who they can trust, who their community is, what their stories stories are, who their enemies are, and what the future holds. People's identities are being shaped by politics. And that's a problem. Because that means it's getting easier to justify the means with the ends. It's easier to shut people out and not listen, to write them off. It's easier to be self-righteous. It's easier to be manipulated. It's easier to settle for too little. And all of us are susceptible to this. So as a church, we need to be intentional. We need to push back. We have an opportunity to show our neighbors, Silicon Valley, that Jesus is a stronger bond than political loyalties and interests. That gospel hope is far greater than any political hope. That so-called enemies can be loved and not contemptuously dismissed. A church family can be filled with all kinds of differing political views. This is one of our great projects and maybe one of the best ways we can call our culture to Jesus. So that's why we're talking about it this month, right? We have four sermons on it. I'm not going to answer every question in this sermon. This is more of a 40,000-foot view. I'm not going to answer every question over four sermons. That's why we're going to have politics discussion night. The first one is in uh, next week on February 9th. We're going to have sermon podcasts, right? So, you know, you have to be patient here. We're not going to get to everything today, but we want to make a start. We want to make an effort. And what we see here is Paul is talking about political identity to the Philippian church. He wants their political identity to be, sh- to, to be Christian, to be shaped by the gospel. This means they belong first and foremost to God's kingdom, not Rome. Their salvation story is centered on Jesus, not Caesar. 
And the power they hope in is the self-giving love of the cross, not the sword. So that's how we're going to look at it this morning. Citizenship in heaven, Savior in Jesus, strengthen the cross. So first, citizenship in heaven, Christian's political identity. This is one of the key giveaways that Paul is engaging his readers' political and national identity. He starts the paragraph sounding much like he always does. Verses 17 through 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And then he continues on in verse 20 by saying, but our citizenship is in heaven. He's contrasting the earthly with the heavenly, as Paul does in many places. But this is the only time in the New Testament that this word citizenship is used. Why put it here? It seems to stick out, come out of nowhere. Well, the Philippians would have understood, right? Because Philippi, though it is in Greece, was a Roman colony, which meant it was settled by veterans of the Roman legions and navy. It had all the rights and privileges of any city in Italy. Its official language was Latin. Its leadership positions were Roman. Its culture was Roman. And the city's elite were Roman citizens. The colony was founded after Augustus Caesar won his battles against Brutus and Antony in the region. So the grandparents and the great-grandparents of Paul's readers were veterans that helped create the Roman Empire. No other city east of Italy looked to Rome, cared about Rome, emulated Rome as much. And the primary badge of honor and the way to advance socially was with Roman citizenship. So to tell people of this church who, let's say 30% scholars believe were Roman citizens, that their true citizenship is in heaven, it's very subversive, potentially offensive. Imagine me being invited to a Veterans Day celebration by a Christian veterans group to give a few words marking the occasion. They might expect a nice, respectful message from me. Right? You can imagine the older gentlemen uh, sitting there. They have their hats and their medals, their badges commemorating their service. And imagine I get up and say something like, Gentlemen, thank you for your service. But you know, your true citizenship is in heaven. I don't think I'd be invited back. Because what that sounds like is relativizing their service. They risk their lives for their country and home, but that is second or third or far down the list in importance to the spiritual reality that they belong to God's kingdom. It's suggesting that your ultimate loyalty should should be somewhere other than your nation. And that's what Paul is saying here. Roman or not, you truly belong to heaven, to God's kingdom. Your identity, home, culture, your love belongs to God's kingdom. It gets your ultimate loyalty, not your country. And to the Romans, this didn't make sense. Heaven, if there is such a place, it's, it's up here in the spiritual realm. Rome is down here on the earthly physical realm. You can be citizens of both. You can have a dual citizenship. Keep your religion, your spirituality to yourself, right? Follow it however you like and remain loyal to Rome. This is the basic principle of pluralism. Many since have felt this way. Many in the Roman Empire live this way. But Rome singled out Christians to hunt down and torture. Why? 
because Christians know that heaven and earth overlap. There is no moat between them. And one day, heaven and earth will be joined. So citizenship in heaven has implications now for citizenship on earth. First and foremost, the country of your earthly citizenship doesn't get your ultimate loyalty. Being a Christian, the way Paul describes here, is very political. Just ask a Christian from mainland China whether or not following Jesus has political ramifications. For many American Christians, though, they could nod their head at this and say, yes, of course, Bob, so what? I get it. Loyalty first to God's kingdom. Check. And the reason why we might not feel the tension Paul is creating is because just like in Rome, patriotism and faith have been intertwined. Many American Christians have been told, and they just assume, heaven is on America's side, and America is on heaven's side. Or at least it used to be that way, or it's got to be that way someday. So fighting to make America the way it used to be or the way that it needs to become can be equivalent in our minds to fighting for God's kingdom. This is a very dangerous misunderstanding. Nowhere does scripture suggest this. Revelation tells us when heaven comes to earth, the wealth of the nations and people from every tribe and tongue will stream into it. But there is no talk of actual political units being there. Countries have expiration dates. France, Russia, United Kingdom, their expiration date's coming soon. United States of America will not be in heaven with us. America has an expiration date. So it's good news that you can be a citizen of an everlasting country and you can put your ultimate loyalties there. If your identity is rooted in something eternally glorious, God's kingdom, rather than a temporally frail nation state, then you can safely weather your nation's storms. Your ego and identity is not tied to the apparent success or failures of your nation. And you can look at it from a distance with more objectivity if you're a citizen of heaven. Do you see why Rome would hate Christians? But Bob, what about passages like 2 Chronicles 7.14? If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Well, first, American people, the Americans are not Israel. They're not called by his name. But there is much blessing for a nation in turning to God. But Jesus sends Christians to all nations to baptize and make disciples in each one. Not to go and build one or two faithful nations. We're going to talk about this specifically in two weeks. Christians are not called to move backwards, backwards in salvation history to one faithful nation in the Old Testament. We are called to move forward, going to all nations, waiting for our Savior to come. And that's our second point. Verse 20 again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christians' Savior is in Jesus more, these are more signs that Paul wants his listeners to make some political connections here. It's a common theme, of course, that Jesus is returning one day from heaven to deliver his people. 
But rarely is this word Savior used in the New Testament. It's interesting, but it's rarely used. Because you know who that word was used for? Caesar. Caesar was hailed as Savior and Lord. And Philippi's story is a story of that salvation coming to pass. The Roman world was in chaos for decades before Augustus brought peace and order. He ushered in the Pax Romana. He secured the bread supply by defeating the pirates in the Mediterranean. Not the pirates of the Caribbean, pirates of the Mediterranean. He brought prosperity to the known world. And the Philippians were the grandchildren of those who fought for Caesar. At this time of Paul's writing, people were already worshiping the Roman emperor and his wife as God and goddess in Philippi. Caesar is savior, and when he comes, he brings peace and order. That was the accepted political story and the narrative that most people believed then. That's why Caesar was worshiped. What is the political story and narrative you believe? Right now, there are basically two competing narratives for America today. One story on the political right speaks of an America that was once great, but that is now losing or has lost its way. This is a story of American restoration. Make America great again. On the left, the left says, make America great for once or at last. The American story isn't so great. It's riddled with injustice. And only when justice is done does American greatness ever peek through. What America should be is still to come. Now, most people lean toward one of these stories to tell them what America is and what their place is in it. Both stories have their heroes and leave ample space for saviors, particularly in presidential election years. But here, Paul is giving us a different story, and he gives it to us just in shorthand in just a few words, but this is the longer version. God made everything, and he made it all glorious and wonderful with humans being the crown of that creation. And humans rebelled, and they brought sin and death into this world. But God came into the world and bore our sin and death and shame on the cross in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is now returning soon, bringing his glory to us. This is the story of redemption. Jesus is the Savior. We are the objects of his mercy and grace. So most Christians can admit, yes, no man or woman now is Savior. President Trump is not savior. Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, not savior. Barack Obama, George W. Bush, not saviors. Even, gulp, Ronald Reagan, not a savior. Christians can admit, of course, Jesus is savior. Jesus alone. But what story and narrative are they believing underneath? See, often we just put Jesus as the savior of the story on the right or savior of the story on the left. Trusting and following Jesus will bring back America's greatness. Or, trusting and following Jesus will extend and expand justice for everyone now. We use the story of redemption to fill out our own preferred political story. By all means, we need to trust and follow Jesus. Not to make America great again or great for once, but because Jesus is coming back and we are to be here watching and waiting for him faithfully. That's the only story to fully believe. Jesus is coming back for you, to save you, to glorify you and millions of others because he loves earth and he loves people, not because he has a special love for America. The narrative on the right and the narrative on the left are really arguments about history 
One might be closer to the truth. Both might be totally wrong. All these stories are provisional hypotheses, incredibly secondary, always up for revision and recasting. So what this means is the first fundamental truth about you is not that you are part of a shrinking and embattled majority. Or, conversely, the first and most important truth about you is not that you are a member of an oppressed minority that needs more personal rights. If you are a Christian, this is the first and most important truth about you. You belong to heaven, and heaven is coming for you. That's what verse 20 says. Now, this has all kinds of political implications. Christians should be inoculated from these narratives on the left or the right. Doomsday and apocalyptic predictions about America moving this way or that need not detain or scare us. We know who wins. And we'll talk about our current responsibilities next week. Getting the right person elected or laws passed or new rights enacted will not solve all of our problems and usher in the millennium. Because we take sin seriously, we know that majorities often oppress minorities. And once the majority in power, former minorities do the same. Because your citizenship is in heaven and your story is tied up with God's kingdom, you can look clear-eyed at your country. Maybe see it for what it is, both the good and the bad. Christians can be walking no-spin zones. Come on, Fox News. Walking no-spin zones because their identity is secure in the narrative of redemption. These other narratives don't capture our hearts and imaginations. We will not put our hope in American politics. Just like these believers in Philippi would soon be saying at sword point, we will not worship Caesar. He is not our Lord or hope or savior. As a Christian, this is your political identity. You belong to heaven and heaven is coming to you by the power of the cross. So third point, strength in the cross. Look at verse 21. Who will, this is Jesus, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Jesus will be bringing his glorious nature and the glorious nature of heaven, God's kingdom, to earth, to his people, to us. We will be transformed from that which is fading, passing, frail, mortal, to that which is glorious and immortal. The affirmation, actualization, peace, security, community that we try to achieve and acquire through political means will be brought to us by Jesus' arrival. But it's the second half of this verse that is most interesting for our purposes. Paul says Jesus will do this by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Again, this is political language, power and subjection of all things. This is what Rome perfected, extending power in order to subjugate people and keep them subjugated. The power of Rome was the power of its legions. It could direct violence in very potent ways. Rome's power was the power of the sword. But Paul here and elsewhere says, it is Jesus who subjects all things to himself. How does he do it? What are his means? Well, just earlier in this letter to the Philippians, Paul said in in chapter 2, a famous passage, he says, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus conquers and subjects all things to himself by the self-giving, self-emptying love of dying on the cross. Of course love is mightier than the sword. Of course only love can truly rule. We all know it has to be this way. Even the stories that Hollywood tells say this. The cross is more powerful than the sword. So Christians needn't be impressed with the sword, with current political power. Too often Christians are seduced by the power of the sword or resort to the power of the sword. But love is stronger and love is the abiding reality of the kingdom that is coming. Our country, every country, works by the sword. Ultimately, we pay our taxes and obey the law because the state can use the sword to confiscate our property or take our freedom if we refuse to comply. The really tricky thing about democracy is the state is based in the consent of the governed. So every voter metaphorically is holding a sword. And as Christians, we cannot escape that. And next week we'll look at that responsibility and what should be done with it. But because we know love is mightier and victorious over the sword, we use the sword reluctantly, sparingly, temporarily. Because we know the true Savior is coming, and by the power of the cross, the power of love, he will subject all things. So like what we saw in Congress this week, Republicans whooped the Democrats again. Politics, like in football, is about imposing your will on your opponent. You are trying to subjugate them, and they're trying to subjugate you. It's one of the things that makes politics a dirty business. And in that kind of scenario, it's easy to hate your opponent. Can you ever imagine these Republicans or Democratic members of Congress weeping for each other in love? Wouldn't that be amazing? But that's one of the differences between the sword and the cross. Look at verse 18. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul is weeping over people who he calls enemies of the cross. They are likely people who might actually call themselves Christians, but reject the way of Jesus. These are enemies. And Paul says he is weeping for them. That's what the cross can do. It enables you to love your enemy. It enables you to want them to receive the same kind of mercy you've received from God. Jesus conquers and wins, but he does it by love. It's the only victory that's permanent. If you can weep for your enemies, you'll never be a very good tool of a political machine. And that's why I got out of politics. That's why I was looking for a new job teaching at a Christian school in the summer of 1999. I had a year in the political realm, and most of the people that I saw doing it on both sides had to stoke their anger every day. They had to hate their enemies. They had to keep their hate hot against their enemies. There was no weeping for their enemies. And I didn't see how I could last in that role and at the same time follow Jesus' path 
of self-giving love. The merciful don't last long in politics. Now, that's not to say that Christians shouldn't be involved. Being ambassadors from heaven means we are to faithfully engage across our culture in every facet. But we bring heaven to that part of our culture. We don't have our culture take heaven from us. And that's what was happening to me. So I had to get out. And today, if you find the political climate poisoning your heart against people, take a step back. Don't tune out, but take a step back far enough to see the true story. Take a step back far enough to see these supposed enemies as potential objects of mercy. Take a step back to remind yourself of your true citizenship. I mentioned before that I uh, studied for a year in Germany in college, right, so that I could learn German and write a thesis. And one day I was walking down the street in Berlin and a young mom was struggling to get a stroller into her hatchback. So I stopped and helped her and along the way we're talking to each other in German. And then finally in German she's like, oh, you're Dutch. I said, no, but that's a great compliment. No, she's English? No, and she, she rattled off a few other nationalities. Finally I said, I'm American. Nine was her response. No way you're an American. Because Americans may or may not stop to help a German person, but they definitely don't attempt to speak good German. Because Germans speak English. When you travel abroad, you are an ambassador for your home country. People build a general impression of Americans and America from the actions of American travelers. And in Germany and most of Europe, the impression isn't overall positive. Christians are ambassadors of God's kingdom here. We do not have dual citizenship. We have one citizenship. It's in heaven. You even have heaven's passport. It's your baptism. You receive it the same way you receive citizenship down here. You're either born into it or you take an oath of allegiance. And we Christians are here representing God to our neighbors and our culture. And that means our way of life and values should stand out sometimes and create an impression, leave an impression. And so as Christians, we will press for the interests of heaven before the interests of America. We will not allow our identities to be shaped by political and historical narratives told by people who want to use and manipulate us. Our lives are hidden in Christ and he will return soon to vanquish the sword. In the meantime, we will use the sword reluctantly, skeptical of its promises. Because of the mercy shown us on the cross, we will love people who disagree with us, even people who hate us. The ends do not justify the means. The cross proves that the end, which is love, is also the means, self-giving love. Whatever losses we suffer, we know are temporary because Jesus wins. Most people are starving for a world and hope better than what our current politics offers. As citizens of heaven, we can show it to them this year. Let's pray. God, we're grateful for your word, and we're grateful that you tell us that as we trust in Jesus, our citizenship truly is in heaven, and our lives are hidden in Christ, and that we can be sure that he is coming soon to save us, to transform us, to glorify us. And he did this 
by the love on the cross. What an incredible true story. And we, we ask that you would help us to have lives shaped by this story. That this would tell us who we are and what we are to do here and now in 21st century Silicon Valley. We ask for your mercy. Please be with us as we face such hard questions and issues. And as we're tempted on, on many sides to, to hate or to settle for less or to justify the, the, the ends with the means, the means with the ends, please go with us. Enable us to be humble and helpful and hopeful people as we engage in this time. Thank you that you promised to rescue us no matter what and that Jesus wins. It's in his name we pray. Amen.